Okay, well, I don't think we're going to get a big crowd for this today because it's Super Bowl Sunday. I forgot that today was going to be Super Bowl Sunday. So I'm going to go ahead and read. Um, I may stop early today because, honestly, I want to check out the Olympic uh, the Olympic bobsledding. I love bobsledding. That's one of my favorite things to watch in the Olympics. So we'll see how it goes because I want to see the the, uh, the medal round on that. But welcome, everybody. This is our Sunday reading of The Ghost of Flight 401. We are in Chapter whatever chapter it is, it's Roman numerals, and I don't want to have to calculate that in my head today. Like everybody else, I've been glued to the TV watching football. It's a great game, real close game. Uh, if you're not, you know, uh, I, I totally forgot. I, I had a brain fart that today was actually Super Bowl Sunday. So I have to be a Rams person. I have my own reasons. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, so I'm going to start reading here in a few minutes. I'll give everybody about three or four more minutes, and then we're going to start reading. I got a couple of announcements to make tomorrow's show with, with uh, Professor Henry G, the paleontologist, will not be at 6.30 p.m. Like, it used, like it's supposed to be because I blew it and I did not realize until, to my horror, until Saturday night that Mr. G lives in um, Great Britain. So that means he's eight hours ahead of me or ahead of you know where I'm at. So after several emails back and forth with Mr. G, it was determined that he wants to go in the evening, so we are going to go at 1 p.m. tomorrow, our time, uh, California time. So just an FYI. And for you guys on the East Coast, that's what, 4 o'clock, 4 p.m. your time? Yeah. So we're going to be going at 1 p.m. tomorrow for Henry G. However, the people that are working and not home tomorrow when you get home, which, yeah, this is what you want to do on your Valentine's night is watch my show, right? Yeah, okay. I'm just saying it'll be out there um, after, you know, after 2 p.m. tomorrow, it'll be out there for everybody to see, so you guys can watch the replay. <laughs> yeah, I can just see it. You're sitting there having your champagne and your chocolate-covered strawberries and getting all down and down in romantic and on I pop with California Haunts radio theme and, you know, and all that's going on. So <laughs> I can just see that. And then you're going to listen to my voice, you know, when you guys are doing your, 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 your Valentine's, whatever it is you do on Valentine's night, you know. So, okay, so I got it. Uh, Mystic Minds Convention, Mystical Minds Convention is going to be next weekend, February 19th, 20th in, in San Jose, and I was supposed to be there as a speaker. There's going to be several other speakers. Uh, usually I don't advertise it on a Sunday, but since we're a week away, you know, I'm going to get it out there. So visit uh, mysticalmindsconvention.com for more information, and I know she's got some VIP packages and some other stuff that, uh, that she's created, and so I think you're going to like it. So go check out the website and see what they have to offer. Anyway, when we left off last week, uh, the author was just starting to really get into the investigation of the hauntings on these airplanes. And he had, he had made contacts previously with some stewardesses and people that traveled and gotten a lot more information. But now he's been talking to pilots and, and other professionals, uh, engineers, people that work on the airplanes, that worked on the airplanes and stuff. And he's been getting more and more um, information. So we're going to continue from there. Hopefully we can get through two chapters today. Um, like I said, I really, <laughs> I hate to do this to people, but I really want to see the the um, bobsled competition with Callie Humphreys and Alana Myers-Taylor. So I might just pull the plug on this just in an hour, uh, hour, hour, 10 minutes or something like that, because I really want to see it. And I know you guys are watching the Super Bowl. So, you know, so it is what it is. I'm sure there's somebody there. There's some, there's some people out there. If you are out there, let me know you're out there. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm just going to start reading, and uh, you guys can pick this up 
after the fact. Okay? See, I got my tablet. Let me unplug. So, here we go. John G. Fuller. Let me get this in a position where you can hear me. All right. When I returned to Miami, I called Denise Woodruff. She should, uh, she's, <laughs> she, 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 it's like the seashell commercial, right? What a nightmare for her, whoever did the announce, you know, the voiceover on that sucker. Okay, when I returned to Miami, I called Denise Woodruff. She, she said she'd been trying to recall other things that had happened, and there was one that had attracted her interest. Right Bay one oven on plane 318. She now remembered, had been removed from the lower galley about one year before, although none of the flight attendants had been aware of a problem with the oven. When I told her about what I had learned from from Gary Lewis up in New York, she wondered if the two procedures she wondered if the two procedures were related. I had learned from J.R. Warden and Rachel that students of the psychic and the paranormal claimed that there was a direct relationship between an inanimate object and its attraction to the spirit world. They called it psychometry. It was said to involve several facets. A medium would hold an object belonging to a person and receive from it information that could come from from no traceable or conventional source. Peter Herkos, the famous Dutch medium who would use this technique, although he had notable failures in helping police solve crimes and locate missing persons, he also had striking successes. He helped Scotland Yard find the stolen stone of scone revered by the British, and he accurately described the murder of a Miami tax driver in 1958. Another aspect of psychometry was the theory that had spirits of the deceased who felt they hadn't fulfilled their goals would remain near objects or places that they were familiar with in different dimensions, but able at certain times to briefly and fleetingly recreate themselves by crossing over from one energy form to another, causing a clear but temporary manifestation. A manifestation that could be seen and sensed by people in the vicinity. The question was whether authorities at Eastern could possibly believe in this theory enough to order the removal and replacement of the right bay of right bay oven number one. If so, no one was saying anything about it, and Denise was unable to trace the reason for the actual replacement of the oven. Whether the salvage parts had anything to do with it or not, there were many reports that some crews had refused to fly plane number 318. In contrast, there were an equal number of crews who wanted to fly it. These included some who felt, in spite of the events that seemed to center on the particular plane, the plane would actually be protected by, 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 by the benevolent apparitions that indicated they wanted to help. Let me open up the chat room here. Hang on. Let me push a button. Okay. There you go, so I can see you guys if you do pop in. There was no question that some of the stewardesses continually begged off duty, begged off duty in the lower galley. One senior stewardess told me she asked a junior girl to get an extra meal from the galley. She wouldn't do it until she got another flight attendant to go down there with her. Others remained steadfast in not going down the galley at all and took assignments only on the passenger deck. Again, however, there was an ample number of stewardesses who wanted galley duty on Plan 318 and found nothing disturbing about working there. If there was one thing consistent about the stories, it was that whatever the images appearing were, they were not harmful. They were frequently impassive, sometimes mischievous, but in no sense a threat except the jangle, except to the jangled nerves of some who were faced with an encounter. In fact, if the, if the number of stories about appearances of Don Repo could be believed, he was concerned with the safety and operation of the L-1011s and wanted desperately to help out. In one instance, on a 1011, that mechanic Gary Lewis told me he learned of, 
Repo had encountered the plane's flight engineer and conducted him directly to a trouble spot in the hydraulic system. It was only after Repo instantly disappeared that the engineer was shocked into realizing that he had not been talking to a man, but to an apparition. There was no question, however, that the incident did have a measurable effect on the airline's operations. Eastern authorities still were concerned whether, whether the stories were real or not. From the point of view of what was considered reality in the modern jet age, it was impossible to accept them. Later, a reporter from the New York Times looked into the stories and was told that an Eastern Airlines executive spent several hours poring over the flight logs, but couldn't find any reports of a ghost. It is doubtful, of course, that if the executive found any information, that he would release it to the Times or any other paper. The Times reporter went on to say about the executive, His effort, however, reflected the extent to which Eastern has gone to track down an elusive rumor that has been hounding the airline for several months. The Times story continued, but there has been no documentation whatsoever as to the existence of ghosts, the company spokesman insisted. Yet the reports of the ghost are continuing to circulate. This was the same kind of response I had received from Eastern. What was puzzling, what was puzzling about what the spokesman told the Times reporter was that the executive admitted to spending only several hours trying to track down the story. If the executive had taken the time to hop on any L-1011 flight and talk to the flight crews and flight attendants, he would have come up with a dozen or more leads that could have excuse me, been traced back to the original sources. The press handout sort of interview demonstrated either that Eastern was making no effort at all to get at the base of the matter, or that it was not about to tell all that was known. In either case, the information given the New York Times was as inconclusive as my interview with Eastern had been. For several days, I concentrated on the routine interviews regarding the crash itself, but that process was simple was simple ordinary journalism. The, the, the imponderables were of a different sort. Both J.R. and Rachel were convinced that it was possible to get direct information to the psychic mediums that they knew, both, spiritual, both at Spiritual Frontiers and Arthur Ford Academy in Miami. I was wary of this because I did not want to get involved directly with a group organized for that purpose. It might be too biased. I wanted to keep it at a respectful arm's length, although J.R. Warden and Rachel had convinced me that both the Spiritual Frontier Group and the Arthur Ford Academy were sound institutions made up of intelligent and perceptive people who had found that the modern medium was an effective channel in helping others with their problems. Its membership included everybody from bankers, pilots, brokers, and professors to almost any part of the career spectrum. In addition to helping the development of the mediumship, the group fostered psychic healing through those mediums who demonstrated that capacity. I knew about the late Arthur Ford only through hearsay. J.R. Had, had a Spiritual Frontiers newsletter at hand, and I glanced through it. In it was a quotation from Arthur Ford's book, A Force or a Farce, that gave a little insight into his outlook. I always resent it when people speak of spiritualists in, in a sort of sneering and unpleasant manner. Every man in the world is a spiritualist if he is not a materialist. It is, perfectly good, it is a perfectly good philosophical term. I am a spiritualist because I believe in the spirit, no matter what name you wear, whether you are a Methodist or a Catholic or a Buddhist. If you have any conception of God or a spiritual quality that doesn't perish at death, you are in a true sense a spiritualist. The alternative is to be materialist and depend only on the things that you can see, hear, and touch. We talk so much about keeping the screwballs out. Every church in Christendom started as, as a hearsay, and every man who has ever been of any value to the kingdom of God has been a heretic. 
Apparently, Arthur Ford was testy and robust about his beliefs. When I finally visited the Academy with J.R. and Rachel, it hardly suggested anything that had to do with the conventional concept of a medium. It consisted of an attractive suite of rooms in a modern office building in southwest Miami. It was brightly and tastefully decorated with comfortable modern furniture and subdued wall-to-wall carpeting. I was introduced here to Patricia and Bud Hayes, founders of the Academy, who looked much more like a young couple out of the pages of an Abercrombie catalog than the mediums they are. Bud Hayes was a successful advertising executive with his own agency. They had married quite young and now had five children. After they had their third child, Patricia had stumbled across a volume of, of Emanuel Swellenborg, the great Swedish, science, Swedish scientist and mystic who had predicted Einstein's theory of relativity back in the 1700s and who had written volumes on his spiritual experiences concerning life after death. The study of his works catapulted the Hazes into their dual activity in the spiritual frontier movement and in secular accomplishment. Their enthusiasm for their work in the psychic field was exuberant and persuasive. They believed intensely that everyone had within him the capacity of being a medium and needed only development. A small publication of the Academy stated, The spiritual development of a medium is not necessarily embellished with any significant act of birth or heritage. It is something every person has the ability to develop and to use to one degree or another. We are not mystics. Most have never been blessed with great visions of past or future events. We certainly do not discount the fact that many people are born with sensitivity far beyond the normal range. For the most part, we have studied under capable leadership and concerned ourselves foremost with love of fellow man and sincere desire to help each person who comes to us. I have always been confused about the whole concept of mediums and cautious of their validity. The vibrance and enthusiasm that both the hazes reflected confused me even more. Their sincerity and conviction were self-evident. Their confidence in, in the validity of the psychic was total. Most people who question the things that happen in the psychic field simply have never studied the evidence, Patricia Hayes told me. The medium acts as a channel through suspending the conscious personality and allowing higher spiritual forces to come in. Simply because these forces are in a different dimension from ours does not mean that they are less real. There has been so much hard, real evidence transmitted this way in the history of mediumship that even the most obdurate skeptic would change his mind if he honestly studied the history. The problem is to get them to study and weigh the evidence. The Hazes generously offered all the facilities of the Academy, including mediums, in an attempt to probe into the L-1011 story. There is a chance, Patricia Hayes said, that contact might be made with Repo or Loft through a medium, and that enough evidential facts might come through to confirm it. I know that evidence is what you're after, since you're a journalist. Although I was willing to try anything, I had great doubts in my mind whether such a contract, such a contact would clearly indicate any real evidence, or if it did, how anyone, including myself, would believe it. There's another thing we could try, she added. If you could get a hold of any fragments of the plane, we could have some of the mediums try psychometry with them. Even some scientists were taking psychometry ser seriously in the wake of, solving, of the solving of many missing persons and crimes through this method. It was similar, in a sense, to exposing a hound to a piece of clothing of a victim or criminal to lead them on the trail. The University of Virginia Medical School had conducted many controlled laboratory tests on this technique with rather startling statistics. In fact, one experiment there dealt, well, one experiment there dealt directly with the question of life after death. 
Under the direction of Dr. Ian Stevenson of the Department of Psychiatry, the experiment is labeled a combination lock test. Researchers in parapsychology had ruled out chance or hoax in their tests on mediums, but they were not certain whether the precise and accurate information seemingly coming from deceased persons was not the result of VSP coming from the living persons. Dr. Stevenson planned to distribute strong, reliable combination locks to volunteer subjects who would set their own combinations. The locks would be sent to mediums who would attempt to open them while the volunteer subject was still alive. After the death of the subject, the mediums would continue to try to open the locks. Six-digit combinations with a random chance of 125,000 to 1 to open. If the combination of the locks spontaneously came to a medium after death, but not during the lifetime of the volunteer, there would be evidence of posthumous communication. It was a complicated test, but it demonstrated how seriously a leading university was taking the subject. I felt that I would like to investigate the down-to-earth leads J.R. and Rachel had unearthed before even thinking about the possibility of trying to reach Repo or Loft during the three mediums. After J.R. had told me that the two Eastern pilots he had met were both mediums and had utilized this capacity in their sole rescue effort, I was extremely curious about, about this unique device, which I had never heard of before. I was also interested in meeting pilots who were also mediums. It was an unusual combination. I made plans to return to New York and, and arrange to meet pilots Rich Craig and Stan Chambers and their wives at the Chambers' homes in Rockland County. On the phone, Stan Chambers was cordial and receptive to the idea because he felt that the story would illuminate a, a field that many people shied away from because they had little knowledge of it. He further felt that the evidence showed that the sole rescue mission had worked. The reappearance has not been reported for several months now. As far as he knew, where before, as far as he knew, I'm sorry, where before the reports were coming in every few days from startled Eastern crews. Further, he felt if the story were honestly presented, it would do much to reassure Eastern passengers about the basic soundness of the 1011, which he felt was among the be- one of the best planes in the air. I know that after the preliminary research on the story, I agreed with him about the plane. I took it whenever I could because of its comfort and stability. I took the L-1011 Flight 26 back to New York, making plans also to stop over in Atlanta on my return to Miami to interview Bill Damroth, the FAA executive who was also a medium. On the flight back, I reflected on the unusual fact that there seemed to be mediums under every rock, even in the technical field of aviation. I had always thought of mediums as rather a mystical group who shunned the mechanical or technical, or the everyday world for that matter. Instead, I was running into them in advertising, piloting, electronics. Jared Warden worked as a technician in an electronics firm. And engineering, FAA's Bill Damroth, had a degree in mechanical engineering. Not one of them seemed the least bit mysterious or occult, or fit the stereotype concept. But they were unanimous, oh my gosh, these were, I gotta get my, my lips moving. But they were unanimously serious about the subject. When I arrived a few evenings later at the Chambers' home in suburban New York, I was immediately impressed by the way both the Chambers and the Craigs took the subject as calmly as if the wives were discussing political campaign, or the pilots were talking about the spoilers and flaps on the 727. Craig was a husky down Easter with a New England twang and over 18,000 flying hours. He spoke with the quiet, deliberate tone of a certified public accountant. You would find prototypes of either of the wives working on a suburban hospital drive or at the train station meeting that regular commuter train. Chambers, of Arangi, California, with a pleasing smile, could pass for a linebacker on the Baltimore Colts. 
The group couldn't be more down to earth. I began to dig in to find out how the four of them had become interested in the paranormal. Eleanor Craig had begun to notice she had capabilities before she was 10. The others had had slight indications of psychic awareness off and on for years. When the two couples discovered their mutual interest, they began a serious joint study of the subject. They began to develop enough psychic awareness to indicate that they had capabilities of acting as mediums, as channels for psychic forces. Both pilots had a highly technical background, and for most of their lives had been interested in mechanical things. But their interest in parapsychology grew over the years. The two couples met. Let's see. Here we go. The two couples met. I'm just looking at different things. And experienced. An experienced medium who had been on a protege of the well-known deceased medium, Arthur Ford. She worked with them for a considerable period of time. The pilots and their wives had began to discover that they could not only summon up specific evidential information from forces outside of themselves, but that they could put that they could put it to good use in helping others in counseling them on their problems. As mediums, they could see into another dimension beyond our own. Further, Rich and Eleanor Craig became interested in psychic healing. They had considerable success with this among their friends and broadened their work, never charging for whatever they were able to accomplish. Both the Craigs and Stan and Carol Chambers were able to put themselves in an altered state of consciousness, where they were able to feel that they were directly contacted, that they directly contacted those who were dead, and to recognize spiritual forces that were beyond themselves. They could do this with or without psychometry. Pilots Rich Craig and Stan Chambers continued their studies and sessions in the mediumship field as they continued their regular schedule as pilots for Eastern. All of the four members of the group were deeply religious and had joined a New York branch of Spiritual Frontiers. The stories about the apparitions the, apparent, yeah, the apparitions of Second Officer Repo and Captain Loft circulated in a rather spotty pattern. Both Craig and Chambers were slow in hearing about the stories. Rich Craig, piloting a 727 layover flight to Cleveland, got talking to his second officer, who had just been on a flight to San Juan where Repo had appeared in the cockpit to warn of a possible malfunction coming up. He then, as usual, vanished. The captain of the San Juan L-1011 had turned the plane back from the taxiway where the minor malfunction was verified. The flight crew was pretty well shaken up emotionally. At the time that Rich Craig was flying to Cleveland, Stan Chambers was working a flight to San Juan. When he arrived there, he found that there was quite a bit of consternation there about the semi-aborted flight. No one could believe it, yet it apparently had happened with a seasoned flying crew aboard. When both Craig and Chambers returned to their home base in New York, they, they compared notes. As mediums, they had a cautious belief in the reality of the deceased engineer's ghost. Their studies into the paranormal had led them to the belief in the survival of the individual personality after death. The studies had included the records of both the American and British Society for for psychical research, where scholars and scientists like William James Oliver Lodge and Sir William Crookes had taken the well-documented appearances of ghosts and apparitions as a matter of course. The two Eastern pilots decided to learn more about the L-1011 incidents and to check back with each other at intervals. Their chief concern grew out of studies made by members of the British and American Psychic Research Societies. Ghosts and apparitions were, according to various scholarly papers on the subject, the result of a tortured or, agoni of a tortured or agonized souls who either were not aware that they had died or did not know how to go on to their further spiritual development after death. According to classic theory, if any of the crew members had died with heavy feelings of guilt, it could cause them to cling to, cling to their former surroundings, 
to try to assuage the guilt feeling and try to perhaps to repair and try try to yeah to, and to try perhaps to repair the damage they might feel they had done. Regardless of what the situation was, pilots Craig and Chambers went about gathering all the information they could, determining to find a way to help both Eastern Airlines in their in their issues about the situation, and to aid the souls of Repel and Loft in their apparent distress. The Craigs and Chambers got together one evening in New York in March 1974 and went over the accumulated notes they had collected. There were many, and they were unusually consistent. Many came from un unimpeachable pilots, engineers, flight attendants. Nearly all the accounts suggested them that Second Officer Repo appeared most persistently. The reports concerning Captain Loft seemed to, seemed to have faded out over the months, indicating to him that he had moved on to his own spiritual development and away from what was considered to be earthbound. In their work as mediums, the pilots and their wives were familiar with the process known as soul rescue. It was a method used by mediums over the years in cases where an apparition or manifestation of a deceased person seemed to not realize he was dead. This, it was said most frequently, happened when someone had died through a sudden or unexpected event. A hard-headed British physicist and mathematician from the University of London, G.N.M. Tyrell, had made an intensive study of the best documented cases of apparitions over a 50-year period. He gradually phased out his professional work in wireless and wireless telegraphy, tele yeah, telegraphy, with Marconi, in order to study the phenomenon in debt. He became fully occupied in an attempt to fuse modern science with parapsychology. In analyzing what he called crisis apparitions, Tyrell noted two things about them. One was that they were so human-like, that they, that they were so like human beings as to be frequently mistaken for them until they vanished. The other was that they do not occur when people are expecting them, or because people are worried or anxious about them. If Tyrell's theories were true, there was little question that the manifestations on the L-1011s fitted into the crisis apparition category. He pointed out in his research that those, in this classification, look like full-rounded human beings, although they most often behave in a different manner. In spite of that, there were many records of actual vocal communication between the, the crisis apparition and living people. In addition, there were reports of some rare instances of physical touching of the person perceiving the image. Tyrell's theories were published in 1953 as a result of the studies he had made when he was president of the British Society for Psychical Research. This was the cautious and erudite organization that spent as much time exposing fraudulent mediums and psychics as it did exploring the field of parapsychology. Tyrell's theories, published back in the 1950s, however, had a strong bearing on what was happening in the 1970s aboard the Eastern L-1011 jets. His observations from the hundreds of cases he studied led him to analyze a characteristic of apparitions that intrigued him greatly, the remarkable imitation of normal perception. Apparitions behave as if they're aware of their surroundings, he wrote. They may come in at the door. They nearly always move around a room with normal respect for the position of the furniture. If they wander about the house, they make normal use of doors, passages, and staircases. Tyrell was also intrigued by the way apparitions, as a rule, consistently behaved with regard to the lighting of the scene, the distance from the recipient, and the presence of intervening objects, exactly as a material person would do. This again, he wrote, may not seem surprising at first sight, but it is very significant 
in a view of the fact that the apparition has no physical basis and no need to pay any attention to physical lighting. He had other observations, all of which had bearing on the question in the minds of the Easter flight crew, who wondered how such ap apparently solid forms could appear and disappear before them with such vivid reality. Except for a few accounts aboard the L-1011s, there was nothing misty or ghost-like about the appearances of the galleys, the flight decks, the passenger cabins. Most of the reports indicated full and complete lighting. Tyrell noted that when a person looking at an apparition shut his eyes, the figure would disappear. If the apparition was not physical, why wouldn't it stay with the perceiver like an after-image of a dream or a dream image? He also tried to trace cases where the image had shown him clearly in the mirror, indicating its capacity to reflect light waves. The collective sightings intrigued Tyrell. Why should two or more people see exactly the same image as many flight deck crews and others had reported? This was a burning question and seemed to rule out hallucination as an explanation for the phenomena. One other observation of Tyrell had direct application to the L-1011 cases. Another characteristic of apparitions, he wrote, not invariable, but fairly frequent, is that the recipients experience a feeling of cold. One can see no reason for these cold feelings. They are just an, an impact. They're just a fact. <laughs> I can't read good tonight. Can't read well today. He quoted a long list of statements made in the cases he studied. I felt myself grow perfectly cold. A cold, shivering feeling came over me. I felt an icy wind blowing. We felt a cold wind rushing by us. Tyrell felt these impressions might have been subjective and not physical. Yet there had been cases where there seemed, seemed to be strong physical evidence, too. Whatever the case, it was practically certain that few, if any, of the crews and passengers in the L-1011 encounters knew anything about Tyrell's theories and studies. Both Rich Craig and Stan Chambers were familiar with them, along with their wives, but only because of their intensive studies in the field. Even with this knowledge and background, neither of the pilots had encountered the apparitions. With Tyrell's theories in mind, the two pilots and their wives came to the conclusion that a soul rescue mission was clearly indicated in the L-1011 phenomenon, especially in the case of 2nd Officer Repo, whose appearances were continuing to be reported. They agreed that they would plan to do this after a serious meditation during the week. They met at the Chambers House in Rockland County, New York, on March 18, 1974. Like most mediums, each of the four had his spiritual guides that they would count on to try and bring Don Repo into their circle so that they in turn could guide him out of the limbo state and onto a spiritual development. The theory of a soul rescue differed from that of an exorcism. According to the theory, exorcism is designed to get rid of negative energy or influence thought to be possessing a person by taking over his body and mind. A soul rescue mission was designed to help a soul who, for one reason or another, is thought to be earthbound, to help him on his spiritual progress and development. They reasoned that in this case, a soul could be confused. He might still think he was in the physical realm. He might find it hard to face the fact that he was in spirit. A sudden death out of normal time span could create a state of turmoil. The soul rescue process was used most often by mediums in cases of a sudden unexpected death to help the deceased to realize that they are no longer in the body but in spirit. This would be the first step. The second step, again, according to the theory's extent, was to get the deceased person to open up his eyes spiritually, to see the light that could lead him out of his confusion. It's like you're looking through a big, long tunnel, and you see a little spot of light at the other end. 
It's a pitch black, pitch black up to that point, but there are guides and conductors there, was the way Carol Chambers explained it. These, this is their sole job, to take a new spirit and guide him toward the light. They have their hands there, and the deceased simply has to take their hands and be guided. Once they get into this light, then, then they can start expanding. It's just like a newborn baby. They're just reorienting themselves to a new existence. Carol Chambers, who had been psychic since she was a child, had no doubts at all that these theories were correct. The others in the group <clears throat> were convinced because of their more recent experiences as mediums and from their intense studies with the Spiritual Frontier group. They would begin the this, this, this session sitting in Craig's comfortable living room. Rich Craig in an armchair, Eleanor Craig on the sofa besides Carol Chambers. Stan Chambers was in another chair. At about nine in the evening, they began meditating. Then Rich Craig directed them in deep, slow breathing that would, intens that, that would intensify their meditation and slowly move them toward an altered state of higher consciousness. They had a tape recorder, and I listened to the cassette later. Rich Craig spoke softly in it to say, The purpose for this sitting this evening is to contact Don Repo for any information and to help him in any way. The meditation lasted for several minutes. It was a procedure that, from past experience, would create a picture or communication in the, in the non-conscious mind that, that, that would channel through one or more of the mediums at the session. They would, according to the theory, actually see the subject in the mind's eye and to experience his emotions. The meditation might or, not produce, might, or might, might not produce contact with the deceased. If it did, the image of the deceased being sought might appear in the mind of one of the mediums and other verbal communications might come through the voices of one or more of them. It was hard to tell what might happen at any given session, because each was spontaneous. Any conscious thoughts were intentionally blocked to let whatever spiritual channels there were come through. They would be looking for any evidential facts that might come through the non-conscious channels, or any duplicate images that might arise in the non-conscious minds of more than one of them, thus providing a cross-check. None in the group, for instance, had known Don Repo or had any idea what he looked like. Neither of the wives knew any details about the operation of the aircraft. If any scenes of this, of this nature could be recreated, there would be some evidence that the session was getting through. At the end of the lengthy silence, Stan Chambers, the L-1011 pilot, began speaking. His voice was low. His voice was low. and I don't know why I'm having this trouble, but his voice was low. And, and his voice was low. We'll leave it at that. I don't know why I'm having all this trouble today. I get a clear picture of a man, Chambers said. Eleanor Craig cut in at this point. I get dark hair, a little gray. Dark hair, yes, Chambers agreed. Some gray. His uniform is very clear. He went on to describe other details. The sideburns were slightly heavier than his. His hair was full in the back, but not sloppy. There was not enough detail for the description to be fully evidential, but it did fit fairly well with Rebo's description, enough they felt to continue on with their soul rescue mission. There were several interchanges that they had learned later fit in with the physical description of Repo. Then Rich Craig spoke. His voice was low. We welcome him here and ask that if he wishes to communicate, he do so. A long silence followed. Stan Chambers, who seemed to be getting a very clear picture, said, he seems to be a little bit shocked. There was another silence that Eleanor said, I get the impression I'm feeling pressure around the top of his head. 
especially around the temple. This might possibly have some have been something to do with the way he passed. There must have been head injuries. The final medical report showed that Repo had, in fact, suffered a blunt impact injury to the head with a fracture above the skull and cerebral contusions. Stan Chambers commented, If you're in the forward section, your head's exposed, of course. Rich Craig added, This could be verified. Then Eleanor, apparently now getting very clear pictures of the entity they were trying to help, said, He said he doesn't quite know what to do. Let's ask our guides and spirit to help him. There was a pause. Then, I feel stronger in the vibration waves. Part of the soul rescue process was designed to counteract the bewilderment and shock of an entity who suddenly found himself no longer living. Rich spoke up, saying, You need not be afraid of those who are around us, for they are here to help us. They will help you in your effort to communicate with us in any way that they can. This was this is why they are here. He was referring to the spirit guides that had that, that the session was that was designed to summon. Stan Chambers was now getting more impressions. He is saying something about a small door. Could he be trapped there? Mediums say that in a sitting of this sort, the images are created in the mind, almost as if a film is being projected on a screen in the mind's eye. They also say that they experience the emotions of the subject in hand, often intensely. Eleanor Craig later reported that she felt excruciating head pain during the session. Rich Craig, who was not receiving any clear impressions at this point, was acting as a moderator for the session. He responded to Stan's comment by saying, That would not be the galley from the way the L-1011 is designed. Both pilots intentionally refrained from studying the full details beyond the mechanical and technical aspects of the Flight 401 crash in order not to confuse the impression that they might be receiving. Stan Chambers, for some reason, had thought that Repo had been in the galley at the, at the time of the crash. He asked Craig, Is this what he's showing you? Yes, Stan said. I see a porthole, like a round window. Now I see a strut. It's a landing gear strut. The retract legs are straight. Everything looks normal. It's forward of the galley, not the galley. We thank him for this information, Rich said. It's black out there, Stan continued in his flat, sleep-like tone. He's got a light, a small light. It's cold down there. Is there a passageway? I see his flashlight. Rich Craig and Carol Chambers had now assumed a passive role in the sitting. In contrast, Eleanor Craig and Stan Chambers were reporting very vivid scenes and reactions. This seemed to be a common thing in a group in group sittings some received sharper images than others eleanor said i'm looking down the shaft to a wheel stan said nose gear strut looks quite far away right now their images seem to be coinciding eleanor asked is that what you call it a strut then she added it looks like a bump on the shaft like a locking mechanism i get the impression of moonlight shining down on the wheel also i see light shimmer on something below looks like water what the lighting situation was at the time of the crash was never determined. The CVR had revealed that Second Officer Repo mentioned throwing on the little light. Several passengers noted that they saw landing lights and other lights reflected on the wings. Eleanor continued, I feel the rush of water coming up to the plane. It's coming up fast. I feel fear, terrible fear. He realizes what is happening. Eleanor Shorts showed signs of great distress. Stan says, he's trapped down in the hole and can't get out. He sees or feels the nose strut starting, starting to buckle and spray coming up. The voices of both Stan and Eleanor were now intense and trembling, almost agonized. Rich Craig interrupted them. Okay, thank you, he said. Then to Stan and Eleanor, you need no longer have this fear or emotion because he has left us behind. 
Eleanor's voice became lower, calmer, almost, almost inaudible. Very heavy, she said. Feel as if my body, very heavy. I feel the weight of the... Stan spoke. The physical has ceased to exist. Rich Craig said, ask him to look around, for there are many here. Included in, the, included in those who are here are those who will help him. He was referring to the theory that there are spirit guides who meet the deceased at the time of death. Eleanor received another impression. The top of his skull is very badly damaged. Then she seemed to address herself to the image she saw. You are in spirit now, she said, and you know that you should develop and find your way into the light. That your love will be, will be for those you still love who are here. That you will be able to communicate. You no longer need to remain here. As you walk in, into the light, there will be many who will help you. She added, speaking to the others in the room, I get the impression that he doesn't want to accept it. All through the session, the eyes of all four remained closed. The voices were soft, except for a few moments of rather tense emotion. Stan was speaking again now, his eyes still closed. The light first appears to you as a dim light. There are those who will guide and help you. Ask for their help. They will be there. Go toward the bright, clear light. A spiritual entity will take your hand. Go with them. Don't be afraid. Be humble as a child. Go with the bright, clear light. Go now. Rich asked, Do you pick up anything clearly now? Eleanor said, I see that he's very reluctant. I am asking Spirit to please guide him and to help him. I get a clear impression that he's very attached to the earth plane, and he just had so much love here for his wife and family, you know? He just doesn't want to leave her. His eyes still closed, as, as in prayer, Rich Craig said, Let us project to him that his love will grow more, even more as he goes towards the light. Stan said, Don, you gotta go. There's more to be learned. Don't hang on to the earth. Go now. Accept what's happened. Eleanor added, Don, let spirit direct you and help you. Your presence back here on the earth is not needed. You have more things to do on the other side. We ask that you look for the light. You are surrounded by help. Stan spoke. He's moving away from us, Rich said. Yes, this will take time, but he's moving toward the light. I can see him. The flat, disembodied tone of both their voices continued. Then Eleanor added, Don is leaving. He's moving toward the light. He's being helpful. Don, go. There was a moment of silence. All four, the two pilots and their wives, sat with their eyes closed, breathing slowly. Finally, Rich Craig spoke to him. We thank him for his information he has given us. The soul rescue section came to an end. As the group returned from their altered state of consciousness to the normal state, they opened their eyes again and looked around them. Eleanor Craig and Stan Chambers felt drained. They vividly recalled the emotions they had felt as if they had been on the plane itself. The pictures they had seen in their altered state remained clearly in their minds. Eleanor got up with a pencil and paper and asked Stan to draw what he had seen. She would do the same. They did so. Both pictures showed the nose gear from the same perspective and were almost identical. Eleanor Craig had known nothing about the design of the strut beforehand. The procedure I heard on the tape was strange to my ears, difficult to comprehend. Here were two pilots, fellow flight crew members of Don Repo, moving from the technical world of the jet plane, which they knew so intimately, and into the unknown world of spirit. They were convinced through, they were convinced though, that they knew how to navigate in that obscure area as surely as they could make an instrument landing at Kennedy Airport. 
they seemed confident that they had helped and guided a troubled, puzzled soul who, except for the grace of God, could have been either of them. I had a lot of questions to ask as a follow-up, and they were very cooperative in trying to answer them. After the soul rescue, Rich Craig told me, Repo came back to us once more. It must have been about a month ago. This was with several other people who had no knowledge of the phenomenon. They gave us a pretty good description of what they were seeing. It matched very closely with what we experienced in our session. Since then, neither Stan or I have heard any reports and haven't been able to gather any. I was trying to get some kind of concept as to how they went about conducting this strange ritual, and I asked them. The process is quite inter interesting, Stan Chambers said in a matter-of-fact voice. The four of us went into meditation, and it seemed that Eleanor Craig and I began picking up the same picture of Repo in the hellhole of the plane. It is not unusual in a session like this to pick up a subject quickly. We both identified the guy by the situation he was in and by descriptions we had heard about him. The one purpose was to see if we could bring Repo in and see if we could end the strange incidents that were happening on so many L-1011 flights. Rich Craig added, we wanted to help him get on his own spiritual path. To move on to his growth. This is very hard on someone who has just died suddenly, Carol Chambers said. Eleanor and I seem to be trapped, seem to be tapped into the same thing at the session, Sam Chambers continued. There was a lot that we didn't say out loud during it, but we saw it clearly. It was as if we were on that plane, in Repo's position. I felt all that he went through, Eleanor said. I felt his frustration of not being able to do anything in the last moments. When we drew the sketches of what we had seen, we did it to verify the incident. They were strikingly close. It appeared that we that what we saw and received were the same impressions. I could feel how disturbed Repo was, Eleanor continued, especially as far as his ability to tell where he was, and in the fact that he didn't want to be where he was. He didn't want to be in spirit. It seemed that he wanted to recreate for us what had happened at the time of the crash to let us know he was disturbed and shocked. He seemed to be so upset that he was actually bound to the airplane, Stan said. We got the impression that he really liked the airplane, and this seemed to be holding him in, into this earth state. What we did for the poor fellow, Eleanor said, was that we explained to him what had happened and where he was. Then we told him, gave him direction as to what he should do from that point on to turn around and look for the light. The theory was that, in the shock of sudden death, the victim didn't realize he was dead. How do you know how to conduct this session, I asked. Carol Chambers said, We've all done a lot of study in the psychic field and talked with many, with many serious, experienced mediums. We've even gone out to help with exorcisms at various houses. Lots of times people who have died in a sudden accident have no idea they're dead. Sometimes they try to attach themselves to the medium involved. We got the feeling that Don was trying to attach himself to Rich. Here. I was feeling the, I was feeling the attachment. He was trying to make and, and felt a little uneasy. So we just told him to look for the light and develop himself. This often happens. You have to be sure to guide them on further. You sort of have to block out this emotion that comes up in this kind of situation. We felt really sorry for the guy. He was an airman, just as we are, Stan said. Since that time, we got one more unconfirmed report that Repo had shown up on an L-1011, which Craig added, but we could never pin it down, who saw it, what plane number it was, or anything like that. Since then, we've heard no more. What we did was apparently successful. Stan went on 
to describe their later session when they felt they received a distant confirmation that the, that the soul rescue had worked. He came through to us later in an entirely different vein, far more relaxed. This was at a spiritualist church, Eleanor said. None of the others there knew anything, yet they, yet they brought him in, into the seance. They were puzzled about it, but we weren't. We recognized who they were talking about. And it was in the vein of, thank you for what you've done. We felt and were sure that he had moved on in that he had moved into the new area. He was no longer earthbound. I think at this point, Carol said, that there could be communication with him through a medium. He's developed enough. He's calm enough now, so that I think he can come through very evidently. It was very difficult for me as an outsider to absorb both the atmosphere and the matter of factness of the subject. So strange and alien to my comprehension. There was calmness and assurance in the voices of the pilots and their wives, and utter confidence in the validity of their experience. The subject was mystical, but there was nothing mystical about the way they approached or discussed the matter. It was as if the pilots were talking to the approach control tower, or the wives discussing the planning of a family budget. There was no question about the intelligence and capabilities and stability of the four people at the discussion. All of these qualities were impressive. I wanted to know more about how they had decided to tackle the Soul Rescue project, so I asked them that question. After we confirmed several of the stories about Repo, Rich Craig said, we began discussing several different aspects about what we could do, such as to arrange to go to the airport when the airplane was in New York overnight. We could actually sit in the airplane that he was most commonly seen on. Plane 318 was the most common, and 325 and 304, or was it 308, rather? These were the three predominant ones on which Repo would appear, that we knew about at least. Then we discussed who we should talk to at Eastern to set this up, but we finally decided not to do it there, because there would be too much red tape involved. It's not exactly an easy thing to explain to someone who knows nothing about this kind of thing. We felt we could do just as good a job here in Rockland County, away from the airport. I asked, did you have confidence that you could make contact with Repo when you tried this? We figured this way, Stan Chambers said, that with these numerous appearances on Plane 318 and others, Repo was apparently trying to make contact with somebody that he could talk to. Instead, he found a lot of crew members who didn't know anything about this. Some of them even were panicky. It seemed as if he wanted to get through and show us that the nose wheel was actually down and locked. We got the distinct impression, Rich Craig said, that he really did like the airplane. He knew that it wasn't a mechanical failure of the airplane. He seemed to be giving a quite strong indication about that, that it wasn't the airplane. His emotional position, whether he thought he was alive or dead, seemed to be that he wanted to talk to crew members about this, but nobody would sit and listen to him. There didn't seem to be any pointing and putting the blame anywhere, Rich said, other than he just wanted to show that there was just nothing wrong with the airplane. And then he was in this emotional state. Stan added, and we felt that if the motivation is sincere, that a good medium can make contact with anyone that wanted to make contact. Especially in a state like this, Rich said, in a state that he's obviously trying to communicate. And we were very pleased, Stan said, that there seemed to be a response from him. Now we'll go one step further, Rich continued. None of us knew the man personally. We hadn't even seen his picture before the session, but we wanted to go at this on our part, not only for what it could do to the airplane. Or, or psychologically to the passengers, but for Eastern as a company.
It was a concern on our part that we had to do something, and we knew that we had the capability of doing it. Between the four of us, the psychic business is a strange business. We get just as amazed about some of the things that happen as anybody else. But we decided we ought to do something about this because the situation was actually getting out of hand. You can't believe how fast the stories were accumulating. But after the session, we got nothing further firsthand. But from the quality of the reports and the crew members we talked to before that, there was no question in our minds that this was the real thing, Stan said. I was interested in the mechanics of their soul rescue process, and I asked, when you decided to do this, tell me how you went about it. Did you go into a trance state? Or what did you do? Well, said Eleanor, we do what we usually do. We put ourselves into an altered state of consciousness. It's not really a trance state. A trance state. There's no vocal communication, as there sometimes is in full trance state. There is more thought transmission. But there is some vis there is some visualization, too. What manifestation did you get that indicated that Repa was disturbed? I asked. It's as if their energy field joins with yours, Eleanor said. You feel all the emotions. I was seeing impressions as they were coming. And so was Stan. At the same time, we could see the nose wheel. It seemed to be coming up to, coming up to the water in the Everglades. And saw the wheel hit, impact in the water. And then blackness, oblivion. In other words, this is the way he was showing it to us. It was after the session that both Stan and I drew the picture that he showed us. Now, of course, Eleanor isn't technically oriented, Rich said, but both pictures drawn by Stan and her were almost identical. The correlation was, <coughs> excuse me, my throat. The correlation was amazing. What amazed me, Eleanor said, is that usually when an entity or, or a discerned person comes through, he will come through one person. But Repa was so strong that he was coming not only through me, but through Stan also. We were also ready. If we heard further reports on the L-1011, to go back and repeat the process. Sometimes once is not enough, and you have to watch out for possession. This is a very real thing. You guard against this in a, in a session by keeping at least one person in the group in almost a conscious state. Then if there's any indication of the discernment person becoming too strong, this person can control the entity. It was interesting, Rich said. We personally know of only one appearance of Captain Locke and none of the first officer. The vice president who sat next to him in the first class section suddenly realized he was sitting right by Locke. He rushed out to get the ramp agent, and by the time he came back, Locke was gone. What about the rumors that 318 was sold or had its number changed, I asked. There was nothing to that at all, Rich Craig said. It's still around and in good shape. In fact, we wrote it, in fact, we wrote on it recently. What about the Flight Safety Foundation bulletin report that Repo's apparition actually spoke to the flight engineer in Mexico City? I asked, is that possible? This would be what is called clairaudience, Rich said. It's been reported in one of several forums. There's an individual observer who was the only one to hear what is alleged to be said. Sometimes it's only a voice inside the ear, sometimes outside, but the observer is the only one who hears it. There's also what is called direct voice, clear audience, where everybody in the area can hear it. What, makes, what amazes me about the whole incident was that Repo was able to manifest and to make himself actually seen by others. Very few people who die are able to do this. Second, 
that he was able to be clear audience. Third, he was able to come through two mediums at the same time, Eleanor Craig said. Rich added, there seemed to be a very strong need to do so. He was concerned. It seemed every it seemed very evident that he liked the airplane, that he didn't want to get, you know, he didn't want it to get a bad name. I got the feeling that he wanted to be back in the flight line and that he wanted to be back with his wife. I felt certain about this, Dan Chambers said. All through the discussion, I was trying to sort things out of my mind. If it weren't for the solid credentials of the two couples, I would be listening to what they were saying with a large grain of salt. Somehow they made it sound believable. They were exploring in a strange world, but then again, so was I. At the end of the evening, I at least knew one thing was certain. I was going to continue on my odyssey in search of the truth about the Elton 11. Next chapter. Just where to continue was not exactly clear. There were a lot of blind alleys, and the failure to get many crew members to talk continued to be frustrating. I knew I needed something clear and evidential, and yet I wasn't getting it. I had not yet followed up the lead that Ginny Packard had given me about Dick Manning, a flight engineer from the Boston area. I decided to try to phone him from New York, not having too much faith that the call would be productive. I reached Manning after several tries and explained a little bit about what I was encountering in my research. Like most of the other interviews, it was a little difficult to break the ice. In what respect are you writing the story, he asked. I told him I had been digging for material in the FAA records and among the Eastern crews, and that I was finding some very unusual things. In all these interviews, I found it best to go about them cautiously. There we go. I'm just looking. In many cases, the crew members refused to talk, even though they had confided their experiences to their friends. I told Manning that I had run into his name through Ginny Packard. He knew her, he said, and then added, you're working at this about the supernatural aspect of the 1972 accident. I told him yes. I would be writing the story in a very low key. He said this was important, then said, yes, I've done some background research on the phenomenon. He continued to speak cautiously. I asked him if he had heard about Stan Chambers and Rich Craig, the two pilots who had carried out some research too, and had actually conducted a soul rescue project. Let me get a pencil and paper, he said. I'd like to get your name and address. When he came back to the phone, he said, there's been a lot of talk going on about this, especially since the Pan Am people picked it up. I pointed out that I, I'd heard the story on almost every airline you could think of, foreign as well as domestic. Well, he said, several crew members have talked to me about it and related their experiences to me in detail. And I have to admit that practically all of those who talk to me are very, very well-balanced people. They're not given to a lot of emotion. I had studied parapsychology for some time at one period, very extensively, as a matter of fact, but I've com I'm completely out of it now. So I knew a little about it. And I discovered that none of those who brought their stories to me had had any kind of psychic experiences before. I checked this the first thing to see if they might have pre you know, be predisposed to this kind of thing, but they weren't. They weren't conditioned to be uh, to expect or even to recognize phenomena like this. I've noticed that too, I said. Of course, he said. You know, people are so interested in the supernatural, which is something that the company management couldn't quite get through their heads. I said that I was finding that out as well. A lot of times, he continued, the phenomenon showed up in the lower galley, some of them in the ovens, but the girls are convinced that they are not reflections. And also, 
At times, it showed up in the crew compartments. And a few captains have have walked out of have walked out in the first class to see the apparition of Captain Lop sitting in a the seat there. There's been five pilots I know of who have been involved in this, and they're very closed-mouthed about it. I understand that Ginny was offered psychological help. Now, I've also looked at this thing from a scriptural standpoint. I found the Bible has quite a few experiences of this sort recorded. Now tell me this. Have you had any contact with anyone who has had any experiences like this recently? I told him no. He asked me a long series of questions about what I had found out, and I answered them. I told him I would have to be in the Boston area and that I would like to arrange and see him. Fine, he said. I might have something interesting to tell you. He did. Elizabeth, who was flying a Boston layover for Northwest Orient, and I met with him and his wife at the Boston Sheraton. He was a rangy, athletic, dark-haired man in his mid-thirties. His wife was a pleasant, attractive woman about the same age. He filled us in on all his research among the Eastern crews. Then he told us a series of events that led to a surprising climax. At just about the same time that Stan Chambers and Rich Craig had learned of the phenomenon in the early spring of 74, Dick Manning was flying routinely on the L-1011s on various flights. He considered the craft the greatest plane ever made, joining in with the feeling of most flight crews that flew them. His admiration for was not diminished by a couple of incidents he underwent in flight, which were inexplicable to him. One of them involved the electrical circuits on the 1011's flight from Orlando to Atlanta. For some unknown reason, the entire electrical power system on the plane went off, but just as inexplicably, it came back on again. The plane was checked on arrival at Atlanta, but no reason could be found for the incident. As a flight engineer with a highly technical background, Manning was puzzled by this and couldn't figure out a logical reason for it. As he was pondering over the event, he began to hear the first stories about the reappearance of both Captain Loft and Second Officer Repo. After he had heard several, he began to notice one common thing. The crew members involved with the incidents were prone to be very unemotional and level-headed. None of them had any inclination to believe in ghost stories, and many of them had been total skeptics before their encounters. Because of his appraisal of those who brought their stories about the apparitions to him, he was inclined to take them at their word. In a sense, this disturbed him because in his Bible studies, he had absorbed the, the theological view that ghosts did not exist and were contrary to the conventional theological thought. Like several others in Eastern, he dug into the cases that had come up. He probed widely to get at the bottom of the mystery. Yet, the more he did this, the more he was inclined to believe that these crew members were convinced what the, what they were saying was the truth, especially those who had been completely skeptical before. Manning had known Repo and Loft, but did not know either Eastern pilots Bill Craig or Stan Chambers in New York. In New York. He knew nothing about their parallel concern, but his thoughts were running parallel to theirs in almost identical pattern. He was disturbed about what he felt was the earthbound condition reflected by the reappearances and also because he was concerned about Eastern and the 1011s getting a bad name. He wanted to do something constructive, but he wasn't sure how he'd go about it. Manning began by reassuring those who had experienced one of the incidents that they did not need to be upset by them. Their main reason for being upset was that they were frustrated about not being able to tell anyone about the experience. He had flown one trip with Ginny Packard shortly after her encounter in the galley alone. She confided in him <clears throat> the distress she felt in not wanting to tell anyone about it. With his wife, he consoled her at the airport. 
and she felt greatly relieved just to get, get it off her chest. Manning channeled his Bible studies into a search for some kind of theological justification for the apparitions. He was a brilliant student of the Bible and could quote chapter and verse at length. Without quite being a fundamentalist, he took the Bible literally. He didn't go along with old. He didn't go along at all with the with the psychic or paranormal, and was in contrast to Craig, and Chambers on that point. He did, however, believe in lay, in, in the laying on of hands for healing. Okay, for healing either physical or emotional, because it was scriptural, and thus by his code acceptable. But he had rejected anything psychic because it ran contrary to biblical Christianity. In his tracing of both the Bible and religious literature, Manning finally came to the conclusion that ghosts or apparitions were scripturally correct, as he put it, and passed this information along to those he talked to about the phenomenon. He found passages related to demonic spirits that continue in existence until they are freed and scriptural texts indicating Christ's recognition of ghosts. This led him along the line of thinking that he possibly could do something about it, and he continued his flights. As he continued his flights and his Bible studies during the early months of 74, he noticed that he wasn't receiving as many reports of incidents as he had over the previous year. One of them involved two stewardesses on a Miami Newark flight on Plane 318 again. In mid-June, they told him a full-scale apparition of 2nd Officer Repo had appeared in front of them in the galley. He had said nothing, merely stared ahead. Then he disappeared as quickly as he had appeared. The two girls were terribly shaken. When they arrived at Miami International, they went to the flight attendant's lounge to try to regain their composure. By this time, a year and a half after the incident, after the accident, it was not very poli poli politic to report such happenings because there would be the inevitable suggestion from the Eastern supervisor to visit the company's shrink. One girl had been put on sick leave for a considerable time because she made such a report. A flight crew was said to have been grounded for a while. For those who felt that they had gone through such a trauma, it was, different. it was difficult to repress their instinct to get it off their chest. There was more than an hour's layover in Miami before their L-1011 was scheduled to take off for a return trip to Newark. Second Officer Dick Manning arrived at the ramp ahead of schedule for a deadhead flight back en route to Boston. Both girls were back on the plane alone, still trying to shake off the trauma of their experience in the galley. Manning asked them what was wrong. They didn't want to talk about it. He, see, he, sensed that they're he sensed their distress. Since they knew Manning from several other flights and were aware of his interest in, in religion, they finally confided in him cheaply, she, God, sheepishly. Both girls have been skeptics before. He listened sympathetically. Then he told them of the many other reports he had correlated. He also told them of his belief in the biblical validity of the apparitions and that he believed in their story. Their chief concern was being sent to the company psychiatrist if the story got out. He reassured them that he would keep the report confidential and that they didn't need to see a psychiatrist. He read them a few verses from the small Bible that he carried with him, which he kept with, it, with the technical manuals of the L-1011. This seemed to calm them down. At this point, he finally decided to carry out the idea that had been growing in, his, in him over the past few weeks. Manning had done considerable probing into the theory of possession and of exorcism. Exorcism had been generally considered as a Catholic rite, but Manning felt that anyone baptized in the Holy Spirit could conduct it. He did, however, prefer to think of the process as deliverance, more in line with his Protestant studies. 
It was also more in line with the 10-11 situation to think of the deliverance of the second officer repo from his anguish rather than a situation of possession of which there was no evidence. The idea, however, of exorcism and exercising a plane was without historical precedent. Manning knew nothing of the efforts of pilots Craig and Chambers in their sole rescue attempt. Coincidentally, he was taking a parallel course with the same objective, to help a fellow flight officer in an unprecedented series of events that, apparently, without any negative intent, were disrupting the operations of a major airline. He told the two girls to remain on the passenger deck while he went below in the galley. He explained that, in a sense, he was going to exercise the aircraft and at the same time deliver the former second officer from the desire to cling to this life after he had passed along. He hoped he could put him to rest. Manning was an impressive and erudite speaker and carried great conviction. He went down to the galley alone and brought with him a cup of water. Describing it later, he said, The moment I got down there, the lights started flickering on and off. I sanctified the galley with a cup of water, which was a which was a symbolic of, which was symbolic of the blood of Christ, and I sprinkled it all around and around the area. As I did, a wind started blowing down there, all over the place. It was like a thirty knot wind. It grew cold. It grew so cold that it was like standing inside a deep freezer. I sensed a presence in the room. Then a shape began to form. It kept fading in and out. It formed articulately enough for me to recognize the features of Repo. There was no question about it. I said to him, don't you know you are dead? You are dead. You have lost your life. Your spirit remains here, but you have not been taken to your rightful place where you belong. I didn't say anything about this present condition in limbo because I am not a judge. You do not judge unless you want to be judged yourself. I am just an instrument of the Lord, nothing else. So I said, in the name of Jesus, by his blood, you are begone from here. I am calling an angel of light, and he shall take you to the place that you belong. This is scriptural. Then, where the shape of Repo was standing, there was a light, a very bright luminescence. It was so bright I had to turn my face away. Then everything was gone. He was no longer there. The two stewardesses met Manning when he reached the passenger deck. They were concerned because the lights had been going on and off for several moments after he went down below. Manning reassured them that they no longer be that, that, that they need no longer be troubled. He was convinced that there would be no more incidents on the 1011, and there had never been any concern about it mechanically. It's the most dynamically stable aircraft that that has ever been built, he told them. It was said that Repo felt that way, and that might have been the reason for his clinging to the craft that he loved. Whatever it was, the reports of any more incidents in the galley or cockpit of cabins suddenly stopped short. None of the flight crews or maintenance personnel who had followed the long trail of stories over many months learned of any new experiences. Second Officer Dick Manning was also confident that Repo had, comforted and had felt comforted and satisfied. He learned, however, that the story of the exorcism had spread across the airline among the flight crews. Eventually, his supervisor called Manning into his office to talk to him about it. He was disturbed by the story going around and wanted to get the details on it. Manning explained to him that what he did was fully within scriptural propriety, and that he did not only and, and he didn't he did it not only for the sake of Don's Repo's peace and comfort, but for the sake of Eastern Airlines and an aircraft that was one of the best in the air. <clears throat> the supervisor said to Manning, "If I believed, if you really thought that you believed in that, I'll send you down for a psychiatric examination." 
Manning looked at him directly and said, I believe it. I dare you. He was never sent to the psychiatrist. When Manning finished telling us the story, we told him about the soul rescue in New York. He seemed pleased. Elizabeth and I were more bewildered than ever about the story. Here was another exorcism by a technically minded crew member who dealt constantly with engineering complexities of the new superjet, and yet was delving into the medieval practices of an antidote as an antidote. It was a fascinating mixture. When, when, okay, what, whether Manning or any of the others involved should be censured by Eastern dependent on one's point of view. In the modern world, there seemed to be a parasitological revolution breaking out. People who want, people who once would never even admit the possibility of a paranormal experience were now discussing that possibility freely across the dinner tables and the most sophisticated and elite circles. Bookstores were stocking special sections on unexplained phenomena, and trade was brisk. The acceptance of parapsychology by the American Association for the Advancement of Science marked a milestone of the renewed interest in the highly controversial field. Mining exploration companies increasingly hired dowsers to explore for hidden water and mineral deposits. One dowser located a water supply running 175 gallons a minute for a new Bristol Myers company plant in New Jersey, a fair return for his $2,500 fee. DuPont and RCA successfully used dowsers, along with many oil and mineral companies, but understandably kept their dowsing results hidden. There was so much smoke here, so much baffling detail, the story was hard to ignore, yet it was elusive, and it was elusive to pin down. I thought maybe an Eastern Public Relations man was right. It was all a bunch of crap. Then I thought about, then I thought that with many detail, with so many details emerging and conclusive as they were, the whole thing couldn't be invented. And what about these exorcisms? The flight crew members had been fully motivated to take the time and trouble to carry them out. There had to be motivation for this, but if the exorcisms worked, how would anyone know? I asked Manning this in the lobby of the Boston Sheraton as we were saying goodnight. He said, I had checked the whole phenomenon out very closely myself and talked to people who had been flying planes for 18 for months and months. After the ritual on the plane, I did the same thing again. As far as I could learn, the reports had stopped. Perhaps what the other two pilots did and what I did worked. There's no way of being absolutely certain, of course. At dinner that night, Elizabeth and I pondered the whole thing. Three qualified flight deck crew members had found the situation alarming enough to take these unusual steps for the purpose of helping both a flying colleague and Eastern Airlines. The juxtaposition of the modern technical world with ancient Kabbalistic, Kabbalistic practices was utterly fascinating and unreal. The more I learned about this psychic business, the more I wonder, Elizabeth said. There's just too much here to ignore. We took a pencil and paper and tried to sum up the evidence that was emerging to condense it into some kind of form that would bring the strange story into focus. The facts seemed to boil down to these. One, there was massive believable evidence for theoretical studies that apparitions could exist. Two, they often coincided with sudden unexpected death and continued after that. Three, the apparitions could appear in solid form in broad daylight and could appear to intelligent, rational, and competent observers as actually being in the area, just as any other human being. Four, there could, in rare cases, be vocal communication. Five, there was a ton of testimony that deceased crew members of Flight 401, especially Don Repo, had appeared in this way on a considerable number of sister ships of the ill-fated plane.
1996. This testimony had come from sane, competent observers, many with technical backgrounds. 7. Whatever the apparitions were, they were not harmful or destructive. In fact, the reports indicated the opposite was true. 8. In spite of this, some refused to work in the lower galleries of the 1011s, while others liked the assignment. 9. The 1011 planes were exceptionally safe and reliable. Crews and passengers preferred them, sought them out. 10. Two different forms of exorcisms had been independently carried out by, pilots on, by two pilots on one hand and a flight engineer on the other. Both were on behalf of Don Repo since reports of lots had practically disappeared. 11. Since that time, no further serious reports of the incidents could be tracked down. Well, Elizabeth said, that ties the whole thing up in a package. Where do you want to go from here? I'm not sure, I said. Half the time I believe it and half the time I don't. That's more than you were at the start, she said. How about you, I said. You've checked around enough now to get a reading. Of, get a reading. What do you think? Just like you, she said. I bounced back and forth on it. Logically, it couldn't happen. Logically, it has to have happened. Not all of these people are insane. Or if they are, I'm going to quit flying. What about the mediums and the Arthur Ford Academy? What about them? They suggest I try to get direct evidential stuff through some of their mediums. I like the Haze, Elizabeth said. They are honest and direct. They have nothing to gain by it. She was commenting on the fact that the Hayes, that the Hayes had volunteered to conduct some experiments. They asked if we could get some parts of the plane that had crashed. They could try psychometry with them. But that's impossible, isn't it? Elizabeth asked. I don't know, I said. Maybe we could get an air, airboat and go out to the site. J.R. and Rachel have a friend who has a boat and knows the Everglades backward. What are we waiting for then? She asked. I wasn't sure. I was hesitant. I still didn't have the confidence in psychic experimentation to attempt anything like this. If it turned out to be a complete flop, I would be disappointed. If it turned out to be inconclusive, it would be just as bad. In spite of this, we decided to bring the question up again to Pat and Bud Hayes of the Arthur Ford Academy, as well as with the pilots and their wives. What was to follow would change the whole course of the story. And that's it for tonight. And that leaves us with uh, an hour and 55 minutes left to read the book. So we will finish off next week. We'll have a longer session next week. I apologize for stumbling over words. I didn't sleep well last night. So I was dragging when I got up this morning. And I'm still dragging now. But anyway, um, let me turn this thing off. I want to thank you guys for coming. And I want to also, before I sign off here, remind you guys that tomorrow's show, instead of being 630 p.m. Pacific, like we usually do it, is going to take place at 1 p.m. because the gentleman is from London, England. So, um, just just a quick FYI on that. And also, uh, I do appreciate you guys coming on your Sunday. I'm going to have to get the Super Bowl scores and go check out what's going on with the uh, with the sleds, with the bobsleds at the Olympics and all that good stuff. But I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. And I will definitely see you tomorrow at, well, some of you who are uh, home during the day. It'll be a it'll be 1 p.m. show Pacific, so I will see you tomorrow at 1 p.m. Pacific. Otherwise, it, it'll be up on replay for the for everybody else. But anyway, I want to thank you. Have a good day and see ya.